Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, multiple Ironman finisher, and triathlon coach, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. This past weekend marked the return of one of the classic Ironman races on the calendar, the ever-popular and beautiful Ironman Kirtland. Unfortunately, like the last time it was run, the weather ended up being as big a part of the race as anything else, with daytime highs in the triple digits, and as a result, a significantly higher than usual DNF rate. But one of the things that I found interesting was a post-race video that I found on Instagram that was put out by Lionel Sanders. Now, as a native Canadian, I have been a longtime fan of Lionel, and if anybody out there can put him in touch with me so that I can get him on this podcast, you will have my eternal gratitude. But that's not the point of this discussion. I have always keenly understood why he is such a popular figure. His story of redemption from an addiction-filled youth to the pinnacle of our sport is a big part of why he's so popular, but equally important is how genuine Lionel is and how much of himself he puts out there when he does well, or, as was the case this past weekend, when he doesn't. In Lionel's brief post-race recap, he related how hard he's been working on getting his nutrition right, and how disappointed he was that in this race, seemingly, his nutrition plan resulted in his subpar performance. And that got me wondering, why in the world was he toying with his nutrition in the first place? Lionel has had several years now of phenomenal success at the 70.3 in Ironman distances, his second place at Kona in 2018 is what a lot of people remember, but his recent win at St. George in an epic battle with Sam Long is just one of many tremendous performances, leading to his standing on the top step of the podium. Clearly, Lionel had his nutrition figured out then, so why the problems now? I believe that Lionel's case is representative of a greater issue at play in endurance sport and triathlon specifically, and that is the overcomplicating of nutrition for racing. In the past several episodes, I've discussed fad diets that many triathletes use and have received questions in my inbox about other nutritional plans as well. I've been attacked on social media for having the temerity to report the evidence that clearly shows that some of these diets are simply difficult to adhere to and, in the end, often not that helpful for performance. Still, nutrition questions, including those about supplements, dominate my inbox and the discussion boards that I follow on many social media platforms. I certainly understand how everyone is looking for an edge and wants to get the most out of their training and race performance. And we hear all the time how nutrition is the fourth discipline in triathlon, and I don't mean to diminish that at all. I do wonder, however, if people aren't maybe unnecessarily overcomplicating things and following the advice of the loudest person in the room who's always quick to tell you how great their plan is and how well they've done because of it. The reality just doesn't need to be so extreme or convoluted. For the vast majority of people, eating a sensible, well-balanced diet is going to be sufficient to provide them with the fuel they need to perform at the level they want to over time. If that diet is predominantly or even entirely plant-based, that's awesome, but I understand that's not for everyone. For those looking to lose weight while training, there's probably some tweaking on the outside that could be done to accomplish this, but it doesn't have to be radical, and the basic tenet of eating sensibly and with a well-balanced diet really should stay front and center. As for on-course nutrition, no doubt there's going to be some individual variability here, and it's going to come into play, but again, it doesn't have to be that hard. Find a program that works for you in training, 
practice it repeatedly, and then execute that same plan when racing. For the vast majority of people, this is going to mean carbohydrates with fluids and electrolytes. How much and in what form is where the individual variability comes in, but it doesn't have to be that much more complicated. Finally, I'm going to acknowledge that there are going to be some people who need specific kinds of diets, either because of allergies or medical issues or whatever. And I'm not claiming that the same thing should be used by everyone, only that for the vast majority, this is a subject that is getting far into the weeds and I think is causing problems, like maybe what we saw with Lionel on the weekend. Anyways, whatever the case, I don't doubt that Lionel's going to be back on top soon. And I'm pretty sure that his nutrition is probably going to be just a little part of why. There's some food for thought anyways. On the show today, I have a conversation with Andrew Patterson, the man behind the popular and continually growing triathlon blog, Ironman Hacks. Andrew tells me about his story in the sport, how he came to be writing the blog, and how he's been so successful securing interviews with some of the biggest names in triathlon. And that's coming up a little bit later. Before that, in today's medical segment, I'm going to take on another subject related to injury. In the past, I've spoken quite a bit on running-related injuries, but today the focus is on injuries from another discipline, specifically swimming. We don't often think of swimming as a major source of injury since it's, not a, it's, since it's one of those sports without any impact, but the reality is that shoulder injuries are really quite common, especially among triathletes. I look at the evidence around this phenomenon and have a guest join me to speculate on a couple of things that might be done to make it less likely to happen, and that's coming right up. Before then, I just want to take a moment once again to ask if you'd consider becoming a supporter of this podcast by signing up at my Patreon site, patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month, you can gain access to some terrific bonus content that is only available to my subscribers, like the bonus interview that I did with six-time Ironman world champion Dave Scott just a couple weeks back. If nothing else, I hope that you'll head over there just to see what's available. And of course, as always, I thank you in advance for even considering. That URL again is patreon.com forward slash tridocpodcast. If you're like me, this time of year is a fun time for getting up early, brewing a cup of coffee, and sitting in front of the television, watching the excitement of the 200 or so riders wending their way along the beautiful roads of France as they take part in the summertime Grand Tour. The three weeks of the Tour de France have long been a rite of summer for me, first on my own, then with my wife, and now with my children, especially my son, who love to watch the day's stage come to its conclusion before getting on with the rest of our day. Like in most years, the first few flat stages are dramatic, not just because of the high-speed sprints to the finish, but because of the crashes that often occur along the way. And this year has been particularly bad in that regard, with several high-profile riders taken out in pretty spectacular fashion. For triathletes, watching those frightening images can be a reminder of how nice it is to participate in events where we are not only spread out on the bike, but also get to spend a fair amount of our time doing other things, specifically swimming and running. Now, I've spoken before on this program how triathlon is pretty awesome in that regard. If an athlete is affected by a running injury, they're simply able to readjust their training without missing a beat pretty easily in order to spend more time in the saddle and in the pool and therefore not have a long layoff. Fortunately, most triathletes aren't going to be sidelined with broken bones the way Caleb Ewan and Mark Soler have, but injuries do still happen. As I've said before, running injuries are the most common for triathletes, but you may be surprised to learn that next on the list is not cycling injuries, but actually swimming-related aches and pains. 
And that's the subject of this episode's medical question. Just how common are swimming injuries, and who's most at risk of developing them? And is there anything that can be done to prevent them? Well, it's going to come as no surprise that shoulder pain and injuries are the most common among swimmers, and in the absence of impact or significant resistance issues related to this sport, the nature of these injuries are almost all related to overtraining or overuse. In a paper out of Belgium in 2020, the authors lamented the fact that given that shoulder injuries are related to overuse and microtrauma, it's a real problem that youth swimmers will spend six to seven days in the pool, swimming many kilometers per week over the course of a 10 to 15 year career. In synthesizing the results from several studies that encompassed almost 1,500 swimmers, these authors reported that adolescent swimmers were at the highest risk of shoulder injuries, and that the risk was less about the actual volume of swim training, but rather the sudden increases that are seen as children age up into more competitive programs. Similar findings were reported in older athletes, where, again, the volume was less important than sudden increases in volume associated with different training programs. One of the suggestions of these authors was that in order to protect adolescent swimmers from shoulder injuries, to encourage them to participate in other sports. And, of course, as a triathlete, I wholeheartedly agree. Still, we know that triathletes are not immune, and even though we may swim less than our friends in master's programs, we are still vulnerable to shoulder injuries seen in swimmers. Several studies have in fact attempted to evaluate the kinds of injuries that triathletes sustain and why. In one German study, injuries were differentiated between acute and overuse, with acute injuries occurring most frequently while swimming or weight training, and overuse injuries being seen frequently in swimmers, though more so in runners. Interestingly, there were no characteristics specific to the athlete, such as age, sex, or weight, that correlated with the development of injuries. But the use of paddles while swimming was very highly correlated with swimming overuse injuries. Similarly, a study out of the Air Force Academy at Colorado Springs also identified the use of paddles as a risk factor for the development of shoulder injuries in triathletes. And I think this is a really important finding, and I'm going to return to it a little later on with a guest that's going to be joining me shortly. Now, that same paper from the Air Force Academy went on to suggest that triathletes may be particularly susceptible to shoulder injuries because of who makes up this group. As you're no doubt aware, it's a small proportion of triathletes who come from a swimming background. Most are in fact coming from running or biking, or in many cases are actually new to endurance sport altogether. And consequently, triathletes are often novice swimmers, and so are susceptible to injuries both from the sudden increase of training volume, like what was mentioned earlier in that Belgian paper, or because they're employing improper technique that may be stressing the shoulder in ways that predispose to injuries. And those injuries are diverse. They include tendinopathies, shoulder impingement, biceps tendinitis, and biceps rupture, as well as bursitis. Now, a couple of assertions by these authors are interesting, and I'm not so sure if they are really representative of what is really going on, or if it's more conjecture on their part. Specifically, they said that triathletes spend less time swimming than cycling and running, and that when they do, they often use swimming as a recovery. Now, while there's no doubt that triathletes swim less than they bike or run, that is simply a consequence of the structure of a triathlon, where a very small percentage of the time is actually spent in the water. As to using the swim for recovery, I can't attest to what others do, but I know that for me, that is far from the case. And I would wager that if you ask the athletes that I coach, they would agree the swims that I prescribe are certainly not recovery. But let's put that aside for a moment and look at some other evidence. 
A study of, out of South Africa reviewed a bunch of papers that have been done on this subject in an effort to try and define risk factors for developing shoulder injury in swimming. By summarizing the data from 29 articles, they identified 18 different characteristics that all can have some role in whether or not an athlete is going to develop a shoulder injury. Now, broadly, these characteristics fit into different categories, such as shoulder joint anatomy and strength, activity history, in other words, how much the person has been swimming over their life, demographics, and musculoskeletal anatomy. Now, clearly, 18 risk factors is a lot. And as you can imagine, there isn't going to be any swimmer out there who isn't going to have at least one of these. So the utility of this particular summary and the identification of so many risk factors makes it kind of questionable and hard to really put into practical use. But all of this really leads to the same place. And that is, how can triathletes minimize the risk of shoulder injury during their training? Given that there are many variables that we can't control, such as age, the number of years of experience in swimming, and body habitus, how do we manage the things that we can in order to make the most of our time in the pool and not get sidelined? Now, in order to try and answer these questions, I'm joined today by a friend of mine and past contributor to the podcast, Tim Crowley. Tim is the strength and conditioning coach at Monteverde Academy in Monteverde, Florida, and a longtime triathlon coach and successful triathlete. Tim published an ebook not too long ago entitled The Powerful Triathlete, in which he helps triathletes understand the ins and outs of strength training as part of a well-rounded triathlon training program. Tim last joined me on episode 54 to discuss that book, but he's here now to help us untangle these thorny issues related to shoulder injuries in triathletes. Now, Tim, you know, a lot of these papers talk about sort of the incidence of injuries in triathletes. They talk about how even, you know, very accomplished swimmers can develop these kinds of injuries over time. But none of them really get into the nitty gritty of how these injuries develop. And I find myself wondering, how much do you think swimming technique contributes to swimming injuries? And what are the kinds of mistakes that you see in technique specifically that get people into trouble with injuries? Uh, well, one of the first things is, you know, when you look at it, you, say you review the research, one of the problems I think we often see with athletic research is, you know, it's done at the collegiate level with young athletes. They may not be, you know, seasoned athletes. And so sometimes, you know, the results get a little bit skewed, but adult athletes often have, you know, shoulder restrictions. If we talk about triathletes in particular, I mean, I think the swimming athlete who's swimming 10, 12 hours a week is going to get that that's purely overuse. For the triathlete, you know, we've got a lot of things working against them. They're, you know, riding a bike in an aero position is really rolling the shoulders forward. The vast majority of their swimming is going to be freestyle and not you know, an appreciable amount of, of breaststroke, backstroke, or, or butterfly. Um, and, you know, postural issues as, as adult athletes, you know, the time they spend driving in a car, sitting at a desk, all these things are working against them. Um, and then on top of that, if they're not swimming correctly, and then what I mean by that is most people swim with their arms. And, you know, to use you know, kind of an analogy, you know, it, we take from the strength and conditioning is that, you know, if I'm dealing with a baseball pitcher, I'm not just worried about their arm. We're using their legs, their core. It's a full body motion to throw the ball with her or someone, you know, uh, spiking a, a volleyball um, you know, or a, ten you know, a tennis player. And what's happening with a lot of triathletes, they're just thinking arms and shoulders. And we need to learn to swim where the arm is just an extension of the body. And we're using our core, our lats to take the stress off of that. On top of that, the other overriding thing is, is show, you know, people are like, oh, I need to work on my flexibility. It's really probably not a flexibility issue. What I see is most uh, adult, most triathletes or, or swimming athletes have really poor thoracic mobility, which is only making it worse. So in, in terms of their 
thoracic spine is kind of flexed. They don't get that extension and they don't have the rotation. And that's causing a lot of impingement stuff in the shoulder. So as they swim harder, or as they swim more, um, it's just probably going to cause uh, you know some sort of an issue um, over time. But the good news is there are ways that we can you know start to to work on those, and some of them are actually very simple. Um, you know, one of the things we looked at, like in my book, I, I think it could show a lot about with the the warm up stuff is using stretch cords, and so doing a rotator cuff work with the stretch cords, I found that to be the most effective way. One as a preventative measure, but two the best way to warm up the upper body before a strength session. So it kind of does double duty. I really like what you talk about in terms of, you know, focusing on swimming as a whole body activity and and getting away from this idea that you're just using your arms. And, and as you know, a lot of adult onset swimmers, which a lot of triathletes are, uh, you know, getting that understanding of how movement is linked from the waist up through the arm is difficult. And, uh, you know, that linkage of rotation through the thorax and, and using that to increase your leverage in the water uh, goes a long way to, you know, unloading the shoulders and potentially mitigating the injuries that we're seeing there. So I really like uh, those comments that you made there. Now, I mentioned a couple of times in this segment how swimming uh, with paddles repeatedly turns up as an inciting cause of shoulder injuries. What role do paddle sets have for triathletes and, and how can they be used safely? First thing, you know, I think people use paddles wrong. They probably get the wrong paddles. They get the wrong size paddles. And, you know, we, we talk about triathlon swimming and, and again, we tend to lump pool swimming, triathlon swimming into one. I always use the analogy, you know, it's like speed skating is to hockey. They're, they're, they're both skating, but they're vastly different. And, um, and so Strength and muscular endurance, especially for the, you know, the adult to the adult swimmer, um, especially in open water where we have, you know, chop and, and wind and, and more people in there becomes huge. And I think triathlon swimming is not about, you know, when you watch like the Olympic trials, watch the Olympics, these races are won by one hundredth of a second. That's really not our goal in triathlon. We need to get from point A to point B, preferably in a straight line. And as quickly and as efficiently as we can to get on the bike without wasting all of our energy in the water. So they're vastly different. So I think paddles play a huge part. And the way I use paddles are one, generally speaking, I think, you know, athletes should have several different paddles in their swim bag and use the analogy. It's like using gears on the bike. We have different ones for different, for different functions all the way to the non-paddle, which could be like fist gloves or um, uh, I think Finise makes one, which is kind of rounded. But the idea is to take the stress off the hand and put it on the forearm. Then you get the ones if you know, I, I don't like straps on paddles. And so Finise makes some really nice ones that are the agility ones. Nothing can you put your thumb in there. But the idea is it's just barely the size, a little bit bigger than your hand. So we're not creating a large overload, but it also a good paddle will help force you to put the right angle in the water. So we're getting that right position because if we have straps on the wrist, we have a tendency to put our hand in the water and bend our wrist. So we're putting all the stress on the hand and not using from the fingertip to the elbow. That's what would you know, pull us through the water. And to that extent, I have my bigger paddles, which literally I call them cutting board paddles because that's actually what they are. Um, you know, I go to the dollar store and get them and you actually hold, you know, hold them in a fist position, drill some holes in there. So now the it forces on the forearm so we can actually put our arm in the right position, hold our body and you know, arm in position in the water and pull our body over our arm, which I, you know, now we, now we're engaging the lats and we're engaging the core. And, you know, I like using those as that might be the, one of the few drills that I do because we do a warm up, we do a paddle set, um, just to activate everything. And then we go right into the main set. So the question then really shouldn't be, you know, 
when should we use paddles, but we, it should really be how and why. Uh, the how is, yeah. as you said, different kinds of paddles for different reasons. You know, smaller paddles to kind of get the catch, uh, larger paddles to build some strength. And then, as you said, other paddles will just sort of emphasize different parts of the stroke, either the, you know, the use of the forearm to really pull the water or potentially uh, other kinds of paddles that are going to work on that fingertip uh, portion of the catch. No, you're, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Even fingertip paddles, they make them where, you know, the paddle is only on your fingers and that you use to really get a feel for that front end catch. So, you know, they'll saying if you're, you know, if, if your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you're only using one thing for everything, it might not be good. So knowing what to have, why to have it, and then using it properly and appropriately. Okay. So I want to finish off on one last thing, and that's really your, uh, really expertise and that, that's talking about how and when can strength training be used to try and help triathletes particularly the newer triathletes minimize the likelihood of shoulder injury when swimming yeah i mean some of this, uh, some of the simple points we can use is one i would say you know if you're a swimmer and you 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 rather had some shoulder issues in the past one don't bench press um, any other chest pressing is okay, like dumbbells or bands, because it gives your arms and shoulders free movement. So it's not in a fixed position, but even then don't overdo it. So I like using, you know, either a two to one or three to one ratio of pulling to pushing, because again, we want to offset all that internal rotation that we're doing with freestyle swimming. So, you know, in the pulling exercises, you've got a horizontal pull, which could be like kind of like a TRX type of row or sometimes a row, but anything that allows your hands to move freely is going to you know, greatly reduce the stress on the shoulder. Um, also pull-ups, chin-ups. I, I like chin-ups with the palms facing in versus overhand because again, reduces the stress on the shoulder, but there's all kinds of angles in there. We do stuff with bands and cables to find a position um, that isn't causing any shoulder stress to be able to create, you know, that balance in there. Again, you know, riding on aero bars really puts us in a forward position. So we need to offset all that stuff, create movement, you know, you know a movement in the scapula um, and all those smaller muscles. And again, using, you know, warm up stuff with, with, you know, with bands, uh, shoulder band stuff to, to, you know, create more reps on a low, you know, more reps at low loads to work all the different angles of the rotator cuff to keep that healthy. So the strength program is really focused on the sort of supporting muscles, trying to relieve the shoulders, which are getting work during swimming and, you know, encourage strengthening of things like the lats, you know, the trapezius muscles, all the muscles that are supporting the shoulders so that when you get in the water, those rotator cuff muscles are supported by these other muscles that you can then engage for your stroke because you're, you're trying to engage your core and everything else to try and get a good pull and, and, and use more than just the shoulder to, for the stroke and try to minimize the likelihood of those injuries. Is that about right? Yeah, no, yeah, ex exactly right. And actually one of the bonuses there, I started, when I started doing all the band, the band stuff was that not only does it, it, it helps for postural stuff. And then actually I found that it actually helps running because you got better running posture and you're actually able to breathe a little bit better, more deeply. So there's added bonuses, two for one deal. All right. Well, Tim, I can't thank you enough for uh, joining me to discuss this important topic and uh, I'll wish you well. And I'm sure we will uh, have you back on again sometime in the future. Anytime. Thank you. 
Okay, so let's wrap up this segment by going back and answering the questions that I had when I started it off. And that is, just how common are swimming injuries and who is most at risk of developing them? Well, they're pretty common. About a third of swimmers are going to report having some injury at any particular time, and up to two-thirds will develop some kind of injury during their swimming career. In terms of who's most at risk for developing them, well, novice triathletes can be pretty susceptible to developing shoulder injuries, and this usually happens when they suddenly increase their swim volume. So the best way to prevent developing injuries is to be cautious with the kinds of strength training that you're doing, making sure that you are protecting the shoulders, but doing the kinds of training that are going to build up the strength of the muscles that support the shoulders, the latissimus dorsi, for example, the trapezius muscles, all of the muscles that are around the shoulder joint, improving your um, um mobility of the thoracic spine, making sure that you use the proper technique in swimming using a full rotation of the spine to engage the different kinds of muscles so that you're not just swimming with the shoulders. Limiting the use of paddles, making sure you're never using paddles that are too big and really only using paddles for a specific purpose. Teaching yourself how to feel the water on the catch, for example. Using them for some strength, absolutely, but making sure that when you do so, you're not doing so too often and you're never doing so with paddles that are too large for you. So that's what I have found on this subject. I thank Tim uh, Crowley once again for joining me to try and answer these questions. And I encourage you, if uh, you have questions on this subject or on anything else uh, related to health and wellness and triathlon, I hope that you'll send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com because I'd love to consider answering it for you right here. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, then you know that the TriDoc is well-versed in the science of endurance sport. If you are looking for a coach who will bring that kind of insight to coaching, someone who brings more than 20 years of experience in racing and the knowledge that comes with years of coaching and both USAT and Ironman U coaching certifications, then maybe the TriDoc is someone you should consider for your coach to help you take your training in racing to the next level. As a member of the staff at LifeSport Coaching, Jeff Sankoff can get you access to team workouts and camps as well as discounts on clothing, nutrition products, and even bikes. So if you are thinking about a triathlon coach to help you achieve your performance goals, visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com to see how the TriDoc can help you get to where you want to be in triathlon. Those websites again, tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com. My guest on today's podcast is Andrew Patterson. Andrew is originally from Oregon, but has been living in Singapore since 1998. Although he's from a family of endurance athlete, Andrew claims he was never much into or particularly good at sports. He started mountain biking in about 2006 in Singapore, then in around 2010, picked up running and eventually joining triathlons. Usually, though, that was in the form of a relay where he generally did the run. Eventually, he moved up to doing duathlons on his own and then finally took up swimming so that he could make the jump to triathlon. By 2015, he had done his first half Ironman and by 2019 had 10 of them plus three fulls under his belt. He qualified for the 70.3 World Championships in 2018 in Da Nang, Vietnam in May of that year and then went on to qualify for Nice in September of the same year, even before going to South Africa to do his first World Championships. 
Sometime in 2016, Andrew began writing notes about how to race better and faster, and that was initially just for himself, but soon he decided he might as well share them for others, so he put them online, and that was the beginning of Ironman Hacks. Well, today he's taken uh, a little bit of time off of all of his numerous ventures, and he's joining me to discuss Ironman Hacks, life in Singapore, and so much more. Welcome to the TriDoc Podcast, Andrew. Thank you, Jeff. I've been a longtime listener, and I'm happy to be here myself. Well, it's uh, it's great to finally have this conversation. We've collaborated quite a bit uh, over what I guess the last year or so, and uh, it's it's a long time, uh, I think, overdue. So, so tell me, uh, I've been interested for quite some time. What is it that got you to Singapore? Well, after college, I went to school um, in Wisconsin. After that, I, I really had nothing to do, so. I was pretty much aimlessly meandering around the streets of Las Vegas, selling cars, selling suits, not very focused. <laughs> and my brother, who was already out in um, Singapore, um, he had moved out here for work because he, net, he knew some Singaporeans in his school, which was in Hawaii. He said, come on over. So I scraped up a few hundred bucks and got a one-way flight, and I've been here ever since. Wow. That, <laughs> so what do, you, what do you do there? So I work in a digital agency. So I run an agency that uh, creates uh, digital products, uh, digital consulting, uh, mainly for government clients and banks and insurance companies and automotive. So we do digital uh, experiences, websites, apps, stuff like that. And that's, that's, my, that's what pays my bills. Trust me, Ironman Hacks doesn't pay any bills. <laughs> All right. Now I've been to Singapore, uh, but I think most people, uh, I'm guessing most of my listeners probably haven't been. Uh, if they know of Singapore, they're going to know of probably two things. They're going to know of Singapore Airlines and they're going to know of the the laws, uh, the government there and the, you know, the caning for littering and things like that. So why don't you give us the reality check of what it's like to live in Singapore and uh, what it's been like as an expat living there? Yeah, well, um, I mean, first of all, I'm here by choice. So I'm not going to complain about anything. No one's forcing me to be here. I'm not, I wouldn't say I necessarily agree with uh, you know, uh, aggressive laws that may, might not fit the punishment. But on the other hand, you know, we have a super stable society and economy and everything works. Um, but it's not like you would ever be worried about breaking a law or getting caught. I mean, hey, let's face it. I jaywalk in front of cops all the time and they never say anything. And, uh, you know, uh, I'd say the cyclists here have a really bad reputation because they always run red lights. Um, and there have been lots of accidents and so forth. I try not to do that. I don't want to bring a bad name to cyclists. But the law here isn't, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a nice story to talk about, you know, not chewing gum and caning people. But it's only really in extreme cases. It's probably no worse than, uh, than uh, some places in, uh, well, I won't be too specific, but I can think of some places 
within uh, a day's drive from where you live that <laughs> that have similar laws or similar you know yeah capital punishment things like that no kidding no kidding um my experience there was i mean i was only there for a couple of days on my way to other places in asia and i thought it was okay. a beautiful beautiful place uh, very clean uh you know just really pleasant people great food and uh because of where it is it's uh it's got a real terrific sort of mixture of culture and mixture of uh, different influences and terrific Malay food, terrific uh, Thai food, Indian food. I mean, just a, uh, I mean, just a dining experience alone <laughs> was, was, was well worth a visit. You, you summarize it very accurately. And, and that's probably what I would have said. So um, yeah, yeah, we have a, a wide variety of cultures and, and uh, you know, different people with different backgrounds. It's very diverse. Um, you know, they talk a lot about uh, about that, and I think that's a, a great a great uh, you know benefit of living here. The national language is is Malay, um, not not English or Chinese, um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 cool. And so my my kids, my wife's uh, Singaporean, uh, she's Malay, so they have a they have a unique background, and they they grow up. I'm not sure. My son says he's an Oregonian, though he's he's never uh, he wasn't born there. Um, but you know, it's a combination and, and, and I love it. So, and also for training for triathlon, it's an, it's a ridiculously good place to train. We don't have potholes. Um, well, that was my next ever, question. That was my yeah. next question. I'd love to hear because I know I've I've watched on Strava. I've I've seen on Ironman hacks all the th stuff that you do. Uh, Singapore is small. It doesn't have any major elevation. Uh, so so what what is it like to train there? Tell us. So I mean, we have um, we have lots of immaculate, pristine roads, and we can train 365 days. The coldest it gets is probably in in Fahrenheit. Uh, maybe 70 degrees and that's freezing. And that's when people start turning the aircon off. Ooh, you're in trouble then. Um, so it's like, that's when you turn the fans to low, but um, it can get, but, it can get very hot and humid in the summer though. I, I mean, yeah, it's, there's, I wouldn't say in the summer, I would say uh, any day of the year. So okay. we don't really have seasons. I mean, we have a rainy season where it's still 85 degrees and that's, just, that's, that's like winter, right? So even in the coldest times, it's it's sweltering, uh, you know, uh, oppressive humidity, which is great for training. I love yeah. it. I love it. And I'm not fast, really, but I'm comparatively better than somebody who isn't trained in those conditions. So when right. people come from overseas, I mean, I have some. I mean, you have the you have the elevation advantage. I have the heat advantage. Yeah. And um, in terms of, uh, you know, you mentioned before cyclists have a bad rap. I mean, is yeah. there a lot of hostility from motorists yeah. when you're out riding? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you you have people who think we have no right to be on the road. They don't think cyclists are allowed on the road. They don't. But actually, the law entitles us to a lane, same as in the U.S., basically. But it's just sort of an unevolved culture of uh, respect for alternative forms of transportation. In fact, you know, cycling is not seen as a progressive or positive thing. It's seen as it's seen as traditional, it's seen as low tech. And for a country whose most parents were living in a th in third world conditions, you know, they want progression, they want advancement. So, I mean, I'm just talking about a very a very small minority. Um so it's not respected in a way it would be in a place like Oregon or Colorado. And what about running? 
Running, yeah, running is cool. I mean, it's a huge sport here, and I love it. I love running in the heat. I love it. Uh, absolutely, so satisfying. Uh, and uh, you know, it's just it's it's really tuned me into um, hydration, nutrition, all these things. I've and I've I've been forced to learn about that, so that then when we go race overseas, it's a bit easier. You know, uh, you were in Nice. I was in Nice. It was a uh, for me. It was a super easy run. Of course, the bike was hard. Maybe it was easier for you. We have a hill here, which is uh, called Mount Faber. I think uh, it's one ninth of of our of the climb that we did in Nice. So we have we have a one little steep hill, which I did on repeats. You know, up and down, yeah, up and down, up and down. Yeah. But it's it's nowhere near the same, right? And and I know Singapore is a major shipping port. Uh, yeah. Does that preclude the ability to actually do any open water swimming, or do you have access to open water there? You pretty much got it right. Um, it's hard to do in a lot of places. Uh, although you can, the place where we do it is near where the ships are, but it's, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not pristine. There's no nice, I'd say there's no nice, really nice beaches here. It's weird because the whole, the whole country is an island. Only uh, 20, I'd say 30 kilometers north to south and east to west is about 45. So it's a small, a small place, like the size is smaller than, most U.S. counties, right? Um, and so the whole thing is, the whole perimeter is beaches, yet there are very few nice beaches. So most of the swimming we do is only in one or two places around the island in the beaches. And then uh, the rest is in pools. But I'd say per capita, we have the highest highest uh, density of swimming pools anywhere. I mean, every single condo here, I live in a condo, we have a 55 meter pool, like I can see it right now. It's just wow. like, there's no reason to go anywhere else. <laughs> and, um, you know, when for the brief duration of time that WTC was owned by Wanda Corporation, there was an explosion of Ironman branded races in Asia. And even though Wanda sold WTC to the private venture capital firm, many of those Asian races have remained. So that's got to be a good thing for you uh, living in Singapore to now have access. I know that you've raced in Vietnam and of course you have uh, Philippines, you've got Malaysia, you've got races in China. So I imagine right. the triathlon scene must be growing and there must be an increasing number of Asian uh, triathletes. Absolutely. You got it very, very much the same. Dan Emfield said the same thing to me when I talked to him. He said, how about the growth of, of races in your region? And they're everywhere, right? The ones you mentioned. And then that, now there's Sri Lanka, there's India, there's Thailand, you know, Indonesia. And so those have stuck. Uh, the one that, the one casually was Saipan, I believe it was. The day before the race, it got nailed by a huge storm and just totally obliterated everything on the island. And all the athletes were there waiting for the race and then it just vanished. So that one never happened. But all the rest, I mean, you got multiple in two in Malaysia, well, now one, uh, two in Philippines, two in Indonesia. So, you know, they're everywhere. And uh, now, oh no, now they have two in Malaysia. Um, so uh, they've stuck around and we love it. And I'd say, you know, you did a you did a podcast a few months, maybe nine months ago, about diversity in triathlon, and I thought about that, and I thought, okay, but that's from a that's from an American perspective. Okay, lots of middle aged white guys, but then I reflected on that, and I thought, actually, that's from an Asian perspective too, because even here, probably not the majority, but in in a disproportionately large proportion, or you know, percentage of the athletes are westerners they're they're british americans and australians 
Kiwis, you know, basically lots of white guys. And it's something, you know, I don't know why. I don't know why I'm doing it. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm not doing it because I'm white, but how come the majority or not majority, but so many are? I just don't know the answer to that. Well, it's but, really uh, interesting. It's so interesting to bring that up because I, I, I reflect back to my conversation with Linus Pegsera, who's Filipino. Yes. Uh, yes. And we talked a little bit about um, this idea of why Asian women, for example, don't take to triathlon. And, and a lot yep. of it has to do with sun exposure. And Heliophobia. I, you know, yeah, that was something I hadn't even conceived. You know, that had never crossed my mind, but it's a really... Yep interesting kind of like cultural phenomenon that, you know, I, I don't even know how you begin to overcome that. Um, but why would Asian men not be interested? And you mentioned a little bit earlier, this notion of, you know, this cultural idea that cycling is kind of seen as uh, a, a means of transportation for the poor, right? Like the rickshaw, for example. And, and now these Asian men, you know, they want to see themselves as upwardly mobile and, and more advanced and therefore view the bicycle as, as almost a step backwards. And maybe it's going to take some time, you know, until bicycling is seen more as a luxury uh, that men, Asian men will then start taking to the sport. I, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's really fascinating. And you're there on the ground. And I think your observation that it's, it's, uh, it's it's mostly white men participating in triathlon, even in Asia. I think that's really really interesting. So, you know, it it, it makes me realize that, you know, as much as here in North America, I think we can do a lot to increase diversity in the sport. Clearly, there are going to be cultural things that are going to be local to where the races that are happening that are going to be a little bit harder to overcome, you know, it's not necessarily the fault of say the local triathlon groups or the local triathlon, you know, associations that the sport is not more diverse. If there are these cultural things that are just difficult to overcome. Right. right. Th that are inherent and beyond their scope, I think. Um, yeah. But it's, it's very interesting. I will say though, that's only my, uh, my presumption about um, the bicycles and being upwardly mo mobile. Some some locals may may definitely disagree with me. I may be wrong, but that's my that's my my well, Linus, Linus kind of alluded to that too. So I, I think you you're definitely on to something there. Uh, and, I wanna, and yeah, go ahead. Just quickly, there's sort of a stereotype that the white guy is fast. And it's like you could say the same thing in the US about certain races and certain sports too, of a variety of sports, you know. Um, but it's not true or false. It's just there are more of them. It's like, oh, how come the podium's all all white guys? Or you know, in Philippines they have the the local the local age group. Like they have they separate the foreigners from the you know. Right. So yeah. it's just uh, you know, I just can't I just can't explain it. I'm I'm kind of at a loss for it, and I'm not fast. Um, but uh, but but that's the stereotype. Oh, that you know in. Certain certain races, people wanted pictures with me and stuff. Like I'm nothing. I'm not a pro. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> that's really interesting. Weird. Yeah. yeah. It's a great observation. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about Ironman hacks. Uh, I learned about Ironman hacks after meeting you through the Cupcake Cartel, through uh, of which bo mm -hmm. we're both members, and uh, I've really enjoyed it. It's a, a weekly newsletter that you put out, and I gather 
So just tell me the the genesis of all of this. I know you were saying how you were, you know, you were putting notes together about your experience racing, and then you started publishing that, I guess, as a blog. How did that all come together? Yeah, it was it was a lot of reflection and almost introspection, but it started out as as like hints for myself, like, hey, next time don't don't um, next time bring a second bottle because you lost you lost your entire fueling in one bottle when it fell out. <laughs> Split it into okay. I write wrote that down, and so I wrote a few more things down, just tips for myself. And then I thought, okay, what if I list these out? How many do I have? I did it in Excel, and I came up with like sixty or seventy of them. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do a hundred, and I'm going to put them online and just share them with other people. And then I thought, okay, I'll do a hundred and one. <laughs> and then so I put them all I put them all in Excel, and I just sort of release them whenever week by week I release a new one. And so that's really what it started. It was 101 tips to a faster race. And then other people started coming in and then I decided to maybe interview some people. So I simply wrote an email to, who was it? Joe Friel. Cause I wrote him a question a few years back about my power, a power meter question I had. And I thought, okay, there's no way this guy's going to respond. And he, he responded like instantly. And I thought, Hey, maybe I can interview him. And then I did it by email and he was super friendly. And I said, wow, okay, let me email Mark Allen. Mark Allen said, hey, do you have a Facebook group? I said, nope, don't have one. He wanted to like share it or something. And I thought, nope, that's not what I'm doing. And then I realized, wow, I should have, <laughs> I should have created one for him to, to share with you know me as a single member. But then I just started um, putting these things together. And then I thought, okay, let me, uh, let me do a newsletter because my coach, um, my coach actually, had uh, he, I think he was the first one to sign up. I put a newsletter uh, box on there and I thought, uh, okay, I don't know what I'll do with this, but then a few more people signed up and I thought, okay, I'll send it out. And I had like 40 people within, you know, a few weeks and I thought, okay, I'll send something out. And then it just grew from there. And it really became the newsletter became the central piece of it because that's where I have the most fun. Um, but on the side, I also did an app uh, probably everybody has their own Excel sheet of foods that they want to. Okay. I want to interrupt because I want to get to the app in a second because the app is fantastic, but I want to stick with the Ironman hacks for just a second because I love the newsletter. The newsletter is terrific. It comes out once a week. It's loaded with like links to all kinds of different articles that you found and all kinds of interviews that you've done. Uh, I, I should also shamelessly plug the fact that we collaborate and you often put in some of the things that I've talked about on this podcast, but um, where are you like, how are you coming up with everything that you put in there? Are you just spending all of your time scouring the interwebs for this stuff? You know, the day before I have to send it out, sometimes I realize I don't have any clue what I'm going to write. <laughs> and <laughs> I just, I have, um, you know, I have a, enough emails coming in with news. Probably you do too. Like you just see headlines and friends send me links and I just find what's interesting and put them together. And so, um, yeah, it's just, it, it was really hard at first, but now it's just really easy and it, it doesn't take me very long. It used to take me hours and hours. Now I can do it quickly. <laughs> so well, you're clearly getting more resources than I am. I mean, like the, today, Today, Ironman Hacks came out. We're recording this on a Thursday. It's uh, late in March. And uh, I get Ironman Hacks, and he's got on uh, there this picture of these gels that are maple syrup-based 
that I, I, as a Canadian, I'm just like drooling over. And I'm like, I've never heard of these. I didn't get the email with this notification. So I don't know where you're getting this stuff, but I, I applaud you for mining whatever resources you have to find it. Oh, thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, um, uh, what's it called? Endurance tap. And I'm not sure about the name tap. I'm thinking it's like, I don't know. Tapping the is, tree. That what, is that what you call it? Yeah, you tap the tree to get the sap, yeah. That's what I thought. And then the best part is on the gel, I don't know what you call this, but I'm going to call it the nipple. <laughs> the, it's got a spigot. It's got a tap. Oh, it's got a, a screw-on tap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, a gel with a threaded closure. I love it. Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to test them out this weekend. That's terrific. Uh, all right. So I do want to talk about the app because that's something that clearly has been a labor of love for you because uh, I first learned about it in its first iteration. Uh, it's got to be what, six months ago, maybe eight months ago. And yep. you've refined it and worked on it. And uh, it makes sense to me now because you're working in a company that obviously produces similar types of things. Um, so tell us uh, where it came from and how you've uh, you know evolved it to the point where it is now. Right. So before every race, I have done what I call a, a race plan. And I do this myself. I just do an X, uh, not X. Well, I do an, an Excel sheet of nutrition, right? Okay. Here are the fuels I have on hand that I want to take. All right. I like perpetuum a lot. I like hammer gels a lot. And I like precision hydration uh, for, for sodium. Those are the products I love, but there are others as well. And so in my Excel sheet, I know how much how many calories, how many carbs, you know, all the nutrients, all the sodium, everything that those have in it. And then I think, okay, how long am I going to be in the swim? Okay. The swim doesn't matter. How long is I can't eat in the swim? How long am I, am I going to be on the bike? How long am I going to be on the run? And I base it off of my prior times. Okay. I've done this race. I did the run, swim and run in these, uh, swim, bike and run in these times, whatever. And I figure out, okay, I need this many, this many gels of this, this many doses of that. And it's all in Excel. And that works for me, but it's not really scalable to lots of products or to other people. I thought, what if I could build a database of like hundreds of common foods, all the common nutrition that, that is out there? Uh, what if I could put those in a database and allow you to just pick it and it will show you the nutrition? And then it'll tell you if you need, let's say, um, 90 grams of carbs an hour and X, X amount of milligrams of sodium an hour, then and you have these on hand, then you need, uh, let's say, four of these and three of those, something like that. So that's really what it does. But then what about the times? How do you calculate the times? What if you could enter the times of your prior races, swim, bike, and run, and save them? So I did X race in this time with this breakdown. And then that was my prior time. Now I have my forecasted time that I want to, my goal time, is going to be based off of that a little bit faster. That's how I do it. So you can save those, you can save the race name and the race times, all, all of your times in one place at one time. So you can refer to your prior, uh, your prior times, and then you can create appropriate goals. And using those goal times, you can also plan your nutrition. So your nutrition will be, if I'm on the bike for, for 2.30, then maybe now I want to be on the bike for 2.20. Then how does that change my nutrition? Probably not much, but um, it'll spit out a list of the of, of how many you need, and then you save that. And then when you're in your hotel room at your race venue, you can double check. Okay, it says I need four of these, three of these, two of these, and so forth. 
So it's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> no, I think you did a great job of explaining it. It's basically a race planner for nutrition and right. uh, by and and it lets you kind of change things up by, you know, if you put in different kinds of times or different anticipated times, it'll help you dial in your nutrition for different kinds of times. So you can overshoot on your bike time so that you have maybe a little more nutrition than you need, that kind of thing. Exactly. Um, does it include a, I think it does. So uh, I'm sort of softballing this for you. Uh, does it include a, a packing list? Oh, yes. Yeah. So that's the other thing I always had trouble with. You know, I'd print out, I'd print out a list and carry it with me. Okay, do I have the battery for my my power tap? Because <laughs> that thing always dies. Do I have a charger for my heart rate monitor? Do I have this wire? Do I have the six gels I need? Oh my gosh! So why don't you just put it in the app? <laughs> yeah, that is um, really handy. And what's the app called, Andrew? Um, it's called Iron Hacks. So Iron Hacks. Um, okay, the uh, copyright. Uh, yeah. So um, and copyright I'll have issue. The... Yeah, and I'll have the link to that. That's in the Apple. Uh, it's in the App Store, right? Yeah, and Android, available yeah. on Android too. Yeah. Yes. So okay. it's ninety nine cents, but um, actually, you know, I wanted to give away for free, but I figured if you sign up for my newsletter, I'll give it to you for free. Just ask me, and I'll give you a promo code. Otherwise, you can buy it for ninety nine cents. You know what? As far as I'm concerned, for the work that probably went into it, and uh, 99 cents is not a bad deal. I, I'm always willing to pay 99 cents for an app because I think that there's uh, at least 99 cents worth of value in an app. So good for <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Money. Yeah. Um, awesome. I'll have the links uh, for Ironman Hacks. I'll have the links for the apps for both the Android uh, and Apple stores in the show notes. Um, that's, that's terrific, Andrew. I, I, I just like, I, I can't applaud you enough of somebody as somebody who's like come from like being a non-biker, non-swimmer, almost a non-runner and, you know, really come to the sport and come to embrace it and love it as much as you have to the point that you've done all of these wonderful things to, um, really share your love of the sport with so many others. So good on you. And thank you for doing all of that. I think it's just terrific. Thank you. Well, thanks again for joining me today. I really appreciate your time and uh, very much look forward to uh, meeting up at some point at a race in the near future. Thanks, Jeff. It's been great. And that's it for this episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have comments or questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, I hope that you'll visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast and getting yourself access to lots of the bonus content that's available there. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. 
The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.